Would you open scripture to the First Timothy chapter 6? We'll be reading from verse 17 to the end of the letter. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 to th through 21. If you're using one of the Bibles provided in the chair in front of you, you may find this passage on page number 1031. 1031. As you turn there, I want to let you know this is, will be the last sermon in a series we have been preaching through on 1 Timothy, a series entitled God's House, God's Rules. Let's listen to the final thought the Apostle Paul has for us from this word. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have wandered from the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. Let's ask the Lord to give us His grace as we approach to study and hear from this passage. Let's ask God to speak to us. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, at the conclusion of the sermon series on what it means to be a church, how to live like a church, how to live on earth like your household, Lord, I pray now that you would teach us once again through your Holy Spirit. Give us wisdom, give us insight. I pray that your Holy Spirit will apply the truth of this word to our lives so that you may work in us sanctification and transformation into the image of Christ. Father, we pray these things in the name of Christ for his glory. Amen. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone, a long conversation, and the other person says to you, one last thought. And you find yourself 30 minutes later still on, la on that last thought. And it's really more like five or six thoughts. Have you ever been there? I cause them once in a while. In a way, when I, when we, when, when I approach the end of this letter, it felt like Paul is doing something similar because in verse 16, look at with me to verse 16. Paul talks a wonderful, wonderful description about the glory of God. He says, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be glory or to him be honor and might forever. Amen. And you're like, done, finished. 
one last thought. And as I looked at this one last thought after that amen in this letter, after I looked at the one last thought, I realized, oops, there's two thoughts. There's really two things in this one last thought that Paul is going to talk about. The first one, he will instruct Timothy about biblical attitudes towards riches, or more specifically, he will instruct Timothy how to teach rich people. And second, he will sum up everything he wrote in this letter by giving Timothy one final command, namely, guard the deposit. Let's look at these two thoughts, two ideas of one last thought that Paul is giving to us. Biblical attitude toward riches. Earlier in this chapter, specifically in verses 6 through 10, Paul addressed the Christians who were not rich, but wanted to be rich. And he told us in chapter 6, verse 6 through 10, about the danger of having a desire to be rich. If you want to go back to that, just there's a sermon a few weeks ago. You can look up on our website. Uh, or may just meditate on this word in these verses. But now, in verse 17, Paul is speaking not to poor people who want to be rich. He's speaking to rich people and giving them some instruction about how to think biblically through riches or about riches, about earthly wealth. Now, before we get into it, we must acknowledge that the category of rich people is not very clearly defined. When you think of rich people, who do you think of? Warren Buffett? Steve Jobs? No longer with us. We typically think of people who are richer than us when we think of rich people. That's our natural tendency. But be careful about that because that word is very fluent. It all depends with on who you compare yourself with. Um, if you compare yourself with people who are richer than you, you won't think that you are rich. But if we compare ourselves with the population of the world, we do have significantly more than a lot of other people in the world. You take a middle-class American family, may not perceive itself to be rich in American society, but you compare that family with another family of Africa, all of a sudden you realize this middle-class American family is actually quite wealthy compared to other people around the world. The intent of, of this sermon is, first of all, to make sure that you don't think this stuff is not for you just because you consider yourself not to be rich. I hope you understand that. And even if, even if you're really not rich, there's still things we can learn from this passage that speaks to rich people. But before you conclude that you're not rich, I want to I wanna go back to the way Paul defined uh, what is a decent place to be. Paul said in chapter 6, verse 8, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Now friends, for Paul, that was not poverty line. Anything above that leans towards richness. So, 
just think twice before you say this sermon or this part of the sermon is not for me. Point is, God has something to teach to all of us, whether you consider yourself rich or not, about how to value, how to look at wealth. Second of all, it's important to realize that Paul, what Paul is not saying, Paul is not saying that being rich is a sin. And Paul is not even saying that the rich need to sell off everything. Now, some of you might be relieved of that. Jesus did indeed say that to a young, rich ruler because in his heart, his heart was so attached to the riches that Jesus' kingship in his life had no meaning as long as those riches were the number one priority in his life. But here, Paul is not saying you must sell everything off or sell off everything. Paul gives a general principle, assuming that not everyone is like that young, rich ruler. The commands are a great window in the biblical view we should have toward money. So what are the commands for the rich? How should we look at riches, whether or not we consider ourselves rich? Two commands are in the negative, and four commands are in the positive. Look at verses 17 and 18. Let's look carefully at these. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. The first two negative commands tell us about the two dangers that rich people can fall into. The danger of pride is the first one. One of the side effects of having money is that it can give some people a sense of exaggerated self-importance. One of the dangers of having great monetary values is that it makes the holder think, or it can make the holder think, that he has greater value or worth. Friends, our society uses this language of worth to talk about someone's riches. When we talk about that rich person, we typically say, how much is he worth? What we're typically really saying is, how much money does he have? But even just the language of using language of worth for someone is just betrays a kind of idea that we do consider someone's worth based on how much money they have. Often, we do that. So there's a danger of thinking that when you have money, you're more important, you're more valuable. Riches can give some, some people a sense of power and even control over situations or over other people. This world tells us that people who have money can do more stuff. Wealthy people in church, in a church, can get the sense that since they are contributing with significant amounts of money, they can dictate what the church should do. It's a great virtue. It's a great virtue to see a rich man remain humble. It's possible. It's a great virtue. It doesn't happen all the time. But it's possible to see Christians whom God has blessed with great amount of, of material resources and yet live with a sense of humble submission to God and to His church. The second danger 
that Paul wants to bring out is misguided or false hopes. Verse 17, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. The trap of wealth is that it has the ability to present itself to us as an object of security and safety. If you've got money, you'll be fine. If you've got money, you'll be fine for retirement. But Scripture tells us that riches are uncertain. Why put hopes in something that, in the end, remains uncertain at best? Why put your hopes in that? The danger of riches is not riches. Money in and of itself is not sinful. But the false promises, the false hopes, the false certainties that riches bring with it, that is dangerous to our soul. That's the problem with riches. So can you be rich without falling in these traps of false promises, hopes, and, and, and certainties? Yes, you can. Can you be rich and not fall in the, in the trap of pride? Yes, you can. And the Scripture has some people like that. And there are churches that have people like that. There are people God has blessed in this church that remain humble. And we praise God for them. But how do you do that? How can we do that? What's the alternative? Well, look at, look at what Paul says in verse 17. Put your hope in God. There's much better, a much safer, a much more certain and stable object of our hope. And that's God. Our hope should always be in the giver of gifts, not the gifts which the giver gives. It's easy once you develop a certain, a decent safety net, whether for retirement or some other, other investments, it is easy for us to, and so subtle, to adopt a confidence in material safety, that, a safety net that we have accumulated rather than trusting the Lord. Now, the hard part about this danger is that it's so subtle and so subjective to evaluate. It's hard for anyone to know if you are putting your hope in your stuff or in the Lord. There, there is no scanning machines that can figure that out for you. It's hard. It's objective. But it's not impossible. It's not impossible to examine our own hearts and to see where are our hearts looking to to get the object of, of our hope. Here's a question to, to encourage you to consider. When you think about your future, about your needs in the future, does your mind first think about what you have accumulated? Or do you first think about the Lord who richly provides for you? It's a basic question. Where does your mind go first? Paul is saying, look to the Lord. Yes, He is giving to us material blessings for our enjoyment, but look to the Lord, not to what He has given us. Material blessings, God's gifts, as good as they are, are never a certain foundation for our hope. Paul is not against riches. The Bible is not against riches. He's, Paul is simply against the danger of using, of us putting riches in the place where God alone deserves to be. 
God alone deserves to be on the throne to which we look and hope to. God alone. And Paul gives some practical, visible applications of that. People who put their hopes in God exemplify that hope with a few practical actions. Doing good, being rich in good works, and being generous. Now, we must understand some things about, about these practicalities. There are people who do good, who are generous, and who do good works. But the reason they do so, it's not because they know God. It's simply because they think it's better for society, for them, for everybody else to, to be generous. There is a kind of humanistic generosity, and, and that's fine. It, it's, it's okay. Praise, praise God for that. I think it's part of our human nature, part of the creation that we should be generous. But we have to understand there's a kind of generosity that is mandated for those who have put their hopes in God. When you realize that God himself is a generous God, we who want to emulate God want to be generous because of God. So just because someone is generous does not necessarily mean that they have put their hopes in God. But to claim that you have put your hope in God without being generous and, and desiring to do good is a big red flag and question mark whether or not you have put your hope in God. You see how that works? Our hope in God is manifested by pursuing to help others. Our focus on God is manifested in pursuing the needs of others and meeting them. I'm so encouraged, brothers and sisters, when I hear people here in our midst of our congregation helping one another on their own initiatives. Sometimes I hear from people who have been helped anonymously. Praise God for those of you who, who, who respond in this way to look at, at the needs around us and, and just generously on your own initiative respond to help. Praise God for that grace. Yes, we contribute to the needs of the church ministry through our tithes, but we are called to go beyond that with our other offerings to help the needs of others around us, and not just in our congregation, but around the world. Parents, be open to show your children how you put your hope in God by helping others. Talk to your children about being generous. Take your children and go and visit a widow and give Give that widow a half a day of your time with your children and see what you can do for her. Be generous in doing good things and involve the family. That's God's grace. When someone else needs help in the church, friends and parents especially, try to get your children involved so they, say, they see you put your trust in God by helping others. It's a wonderful picture of God's grace. Why should we do that? Why should rich people do that? Why should all of us, whether you consider yourself rich or not, why should we do this? Look at verse 19. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Again, we must be careful to understand what Paul is not saying here. He's not saying that giving money earns our salvation. Only Christ has earned our salvation. And that salvation becomes ours only as we, respond, as we respond to the gospel through faith and repentance. Yet once we experience this new birth, the regeneration that we talked about last week, 
once we have responded to the call of the gospel, such good works are called upon us to do to demonstrate the reality of that faith and salvation. Jesus said something similar when he said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. In conversion, our hearts are changed, so now we start treasuring Christ. But that will slowly manifest itself throughout time in so many ways, and one of them is by being generous. That's the point. That's how we lay a treasure for us in heaven because it is an evidence that Jesus has truly become our treasure here on earth. George Knight, one of the New Testament commentators, said the following, When both Paul and Jesus are saying, what Paul, both Paul and Jesus are saying is that one who has accepted God's grace and salvation must evidence it in one's life. Thus they are quite willing to say, as both an encouragement and a warning, that this evidence of salvation is a necessity for the reception of the eternal life. It's amazing, friends, that Timothy as a pastor is given the charge to shepherd people's hearts in how they should regard riches. It's amazing that the Bible has so clear teachings to us about these earthly values. Not because the Bible wants your money. Not because God wants your money. No, God has everything. He doesn't need your money. The bigger issue is the object of your hopes. That's what God is after. Are you setting your hope on uncertain things or on the pride of riches? God is interested in your heart, and when your heart is changed, your money, your behavior will relieve the truthfulness of that change. How we handle money, how we handle riches is a great indicator of our hearts. Friends, have you ever considered the difference, the distinction between a barometer and a thermometer? A barometer is that device that some of us like to go to. It's there when you want to make the temperature lower or higher in this building. Ed helps us with that here, to determine the temperature in this building. But a thermometer has nothing to do with causing the temperature to go up or down. All it does, it reads the temperature. That's a, it's a big difference. In a similar way, the way we handle riches, money, wealth, is not a barometer of our salvation, but a thermometer. Do you see how that works? And Paul wants us to understand these truths. By the way, one of the ways to protect our hearts from the dangers of pride and false hopes is to practice generosity. It's a wonderful tool. After finishing this one last thought about biblical attitudes toward riches, Paul goes to the final thought, final command, namely guarding the deposit. Let's look at this really, honestly, truthfully, final thought in this letter of 1 Timothy. Guard the deposit. Verse 20. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Now, other translations who are more wooden say, guard the deposit. The word used for deposit is not talking about 
a financial deposit, but about a spiritual heritage that has been entrusted to Timothy and to all other Orthodox Christians throughout the centuries. But one of the implications of this word deposit is that it typically referred to something that was valuable. Guard the deposit. It's valuable. It's worthy to be guarded. And what is this deposit? What is the deposit that has been entrusted to Timothy? In one way, Paul does not describe it explicitly in this passage. But that's because everything he has said so far has been part of the deposit. And everything that Timothy has received has been part of the deposit. In one way, we could say the truth of the gospel has been the deposit that Timothy has been entrusted with. Several times in this letter, Paul is explicitly stating the gospel to this pastor. Did he not know it? Oh, yes, he did. But Paul wanted to remind him of this gospel so he could guard it. The deposit is also the applications of this gospel for our life and practice. You see, the gospel is not just truth statements. These truth statements have implications about our lives, or for our lives, individually and together as a church. This entire letter includes not only the gospel, but the implications of the community that believes this gospel. That's why this overall theme of this series has been God's house, God's rules. Since a church is not simply a club, it's not a lion's club, it's not a gardening club, it's not a country club, it is not simply a social gathering, the church is God's household. When we believe the gospel and respond to the gospel, we are adopted into God's family. And since the church is God's family, He gets to make the rules. Guess what? We are part of God's family. We're members of God's family. But we don't get to make the rules. I know that might be disappointing for some people. But it's God's family. He has graciously adopted us into that family. If you've ever spoken to a family who has adopted children, what a blessing it is to have someone who did not belong to that family now be a part of that. Not because of natural descent, because of natural birth, but because of adoption. But guess what? It's the parents that get to make the rules. In a similar way, the scripture reminds us, Paul reminds us that the gospel has implications for us. God laid certain principles for us, for his family. Paul was supposed to visit Timothy. Paul asked Timothy to stay in Ephesus and said, I'm going to come to you. But he delayed. So because he delayed, Paul wrote to this young preacher who was inexperienced and was very shy and timid. He wrote to this young preacher a list of things, a letter, so this young, inexperienced preacher would know how to lead God's family. That's what caused the letter of 1 Timothy. Because Paul was concerned that Timothy as a pastor would know how to shepherd God's family so they would truly be God's family under God's kingship, under, under his rules. Friends, let me ask you, have you developed tiredness in hearing some of the many teachings on how to function as a church? 
I know, I have to confess to you, that the word, the way I entitled this series, God's House, God's Rules, was not very attractive to some people. Would you agree with that? Because nobody likes to hear about rules, right? I mean, today we just talk about grace. So I know it's not the most attractive and popular title for this sermon series. But at the end, whether we call them rules or principles or teachings, in the end, God rules. I may have not been as pedantic or tactful to use that word rules in this series as a big title. But in the end, that's the reality. God rules. Praise God. He has opened our hearts to submit ourselves and, and repent of our sins and submit ourselves to his kingship. Praise God for that. Guarding the truth means being reminded of the truth, making it explicit and clarifying how it applies to our situation as a church. But make no mistake, brothers, we personally have to be willing to guard the deposit not only as a church by ensuring that we know the gospel, that we're willing to grow in understanding it and connecting every aspect of our lives together, but we also are called to guard this deposit personally when we talk to others about this gospel, when we talk to others about God's word, to tell them not only about the love of God, which we are definitely called to proclaim, how God loved us so richly and lavishly in Jesus Christ. But don't shy away from telling them about God's wrath against sin. God's love in Christ is more beautiful when they understand first God's judgment against all rebellion. Why do you think that jewelers, when, you go, when, when they display their diamonds, they put them always against a very dark cloth? Why? Because it makes it come more, it makes the diamond come out more beautiful against a dark cloth. In a similar way, the gospel presents both the, the news of God's love, but that love is more conspicuous and glorious when it's put together and explained against the backdrop of the wrath of God against all rebellion, including ours. We guard the truth. We guard the gospel when we tell people the full gospel. We guard the gospel when we also present not only the, the benefits of the gospel, but the costs of the gospel. That it will cost us our lives to follow Jesus. The gospel is free, but it's not cheap. The gospel is free, and we're called to repent and believe. But when we follow Jesus, it's like the merchant who has found a great treasure. And because of the, the value of the treasure he has found, he sells off everything he has in order to get this treasure. That's another picture of the gospel. We guard the gospel by making sure that we don't, don't use the modern-day salesmanship principles of exaggerating the benefits and downplaying the costs. We give the gospel faithfully and trust that God will use it to bring conversion to people's hearts. 
other texts in the, in the Bible, there are many others that uh, encourage us to guard the faith. Just one passage, Jude chapter 3. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. It would have been easier for Jude to write about God's salvation. But he says, something came up, and I changed my mind. I'm going to have to write to you now about the importance of contending for the faith that has been once and for all entrusted to the saints. What should we do, or why should we guard the truth? Before we talk about the why should we guard the truth, let me pause here for a second. I think there's an important part here because some people think that guarding the truth is opposite of spreading the truth. That you either guard the truth or you spread it. You either evangelize or you just focus on your in internal stuff. And we want to realize, realize that the Bible and Paul does not want to think of spreading the truth and guarding the truth at two different extremes. Spreading something that you don't guard puts you in the danger of, of spreading a false truth. Guarding something that you don't spread reveals that you may not have understood the truth. This truth that God has entrusted to us, He calls us to spread it. We can't keep it to ourselves. So when somebody calls himself a Christ follower, but he doesn't like to talk to other people about Christ and to encourage others to follow Christ, I'm not sure what he means by following Christ. Because following Christ means telling others how to follow Christ. Being a disciple of Jesus means being a disciple maker. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus without being a disciple maker. Spreading the gospel and guarding the gospel are not opposite extremes. Are two sides of the same coin. But why? Why should we guard the gospel? Why should we guard the truth? Look at verse 21. Paul says, Because some which have professed false teaching in doing so have wandered from the faith. And here's why we need to guard the truth. Because some have wandered away from the faith. And some are wandering away from the faith, and some will wander away from the faith. Now friends, what a way to end a letter with this picture of people who are wandering away from the faith. But do you remember in chapter 1, that's how Paul started? Look at chapter 1. Paul says to Timothy, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. And then this chapter ends with a picture where Paul is calling on names of people who have shipwrecked their faith. Verse um, 18, my Tim Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies one made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding on to the faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymnaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. What a, what a hard picture of someone who has actually been put out of the church because they have abandoned the faith. And this letter is finishing with the same picture. Some have, some are, some will wander from the faith. Church, do we believe this? 
Because if we do, that should give us reasons for us to be on guard and to make sure we guard the truth. Because a false understanding of the truth will lead people to perish, to wander from the faith. So, how do we guard the truth? How do we guard the truth? One of my professors in seminary, Don Carson, said the following, one generation knows the gospel, the second generation assumes the gospel, the third generation loses the gospel. How do we guard the truth? By being clear about the gospel. By being clear about the gospel. By not assuming it. Friends, I need to tell you a secret about me. I do not assume that people know the gospel. I want them to tell me that they know it. There are too many Christians who assume they know the gospel. I want to hear it. We do, I do not want us to be the generation that assumes the gospel. Because if we do, the generation after us will lose it. We must explicitly teach it. We must remind ourselves of it. And we must expect one another to say it to one another. It's amazing that Paul used this principle to Timothy. To a pastor, Paul explicitly gave the gospel a few times in this letter. Therefore, we too should be clear about the gospel. We must not assume that people know the faith. We must constantly teach it and examine it in our lives. Do we know what we have believed? Do we know the gospel? Friends, this is one of the questions I ask prospective members who seek to become members of our fellowship, of our congregation. I want to make sure that before they become members of this congregation, they know the gospel. The basic truth. I'm not talking about the deep riches of, of the cross, the deep knowledge of, of Calvary. I'm just talking for the basic truth of the gospel. Do they know it? What have they put their hopes in? I want to know. I think it's fair for us to know before people come into the, our congregation. So that one way we guard the truth is to expect it. As a pastor, dear church members, I love you too much to superficially presume that you know the gospel. I love you too much. So I'm going to ask it out of love, out of a desire to protect you from false understandings of it. So one way about guarding the truth is be clear about it. Be clear, teach it, expect it, Examine it. Second, by studying passages in the Bible where guarding the truth is a main point. Studying passages like the letters of First and Second Timothy, the letter of Galatians, the letter of Jude, the letter of Hebrews are passages where the authors are constantly correcting false understandings of the truth that have been passed on to them. Uh, this is why we have done this letter in First Timothy over the last 16 weeks. A third way we can guard the truth by being ready to confront false understandings of the truth, 
by being ready to confront false understandings of the truth. Now, in some way, pastors or shepherds have a greater responsibility in this guarding responsibility and in exposing false versions of the truth by exposing error, by protecting the sheep from the wolves who might be dressed in sheep clothing. In Acts chapter 20, the apostle Paul brings the elders of the church in Ephesus, and here's what he tells them. Keep watch over yourselves and over the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I've never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. This is the heart of a pastor who cares for his sheep, to protect his sheep from error. God has, trust, has trusted a special task to overseers and to elders and to shepherds to watch out for dangerous teachings, for false pretenders of the faith who may lead the sheep away. But this responsibility, friends, is given also to the church at large. Read the first of the chapters, letters of, of Revelation, where God is speaking to the whole church, asking them to do something about false practices in the church. So what are some current influences that plague the church? Well, I've addressed one a few weeks ago. The prosperity gospel is a very false, clearly false teaching. Be aware of it. Be weary of it. Run away from it. Don't jump on it. If you want to know more about it, there's a little book we have made available for you. Uh, health, wealth, something like about health and wealth. The gospel, how have these distorted the gospel of Jesus Christ? A wonderful book out there. Last week, a friend of mine gave me a, another a book entitled Ashamed of the Gospel, written by John MacArthur. And John, John MacArthur uh, explains the downgrade controversy which Spurgeon triggered in his day by exposing compromises of which the church in Spurgeon's time was making. MacArthur's point in the book is that Spurgeon's warnings for his day are still valid for the church today. MacArthur identified a few failures of the church in guarding the truth. The church has, been, has given into a pragmatic-driven method or methods. Pragmatism is a notion that meaning or worth is determined by practical consequences. It is closely akin to utilitarianism, the belief that, truthful, that usefulness is a standard of what is good. MacArthur quoted a preacher who made a New Year resolution. Here's, here's a, that, that preacher's New Year resolution. Wasting less time in listening to long sermons and spending more time preparing short ones. That pastor said, people, quote, people, I've discovered, will forgive even poor theology as long as they get, get out before noon. None of you believe this here, I know. This is a pragmatic-driven pastor who's more interested in the usefulness of the message than the truthfulness of it. MacArthur observed, quote, Unfortunately, that perfectly sums up the predominant attitude behind much of contemporary ministry. Bad doctrine is tolerable. A long sermon most certainly is not. 
the timing of the benediction is a far more concern to the average churchgoer than the content, the content of the sermon. Long-windedness has become a greater sin than heresy. End of quote. John MacArthur. Is he right? I'll let you decide. Here's another danger John MacArthur identifies. Market-driven principles, which do ministry by claiming that anything that tends to leave the consumer unsatisfied must be jettisoned. Preaching, particularly preaching about sin, righteousness, and judgment, is too conf confrontive to be truly satisfying. The church must learn to couch the truth in ways that amuse and entertain. End of quote. George Barnum, in his book, Marketing the Church, says, quote, I believe that developing a marketing orientation is precisely what the church needs to do if we are to make a difference in the spiritual health of this nation for the remainder of the century. End of quote. MacArthur goes to a third, a third danger, success-driven values. The problem is not with success, MacArthur says, but that the church has adopted the world's values of success. So MacArthur writes, quote, external criteria such as affluence, numbers, money, or positive response have never been the biblical measure of success in ministry. Faithfulness, godliness, and spiritual commitment are the virtues God in esteems. That is true in both small and large churches. Size does not signify God's blessing, and popularity is no barometer of success. In fact, it can be a reason for condemnation. God told Jeremiah the following, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so. Jeremiah 5, 30 and 31. MacArthur continues, instead of urging Timothy to devise a ministry that would, be, that would garner accolades from the world, he word, warned him about suffering and hardship, hardly the stuff of modern church growth experts' aspirations. Paul's emphasis was on commitment, not success. Real success is doing the will of God regardless of the consequences. End of quote. I praise God for a pastor who has exposed some untruths, distortions of the truth, and he's helping us understand him. So be ready, be willing to confront false teaching. Be willing to expose it. It's a third way we guard against false, against, we guard the deposit. But there's a fourth one I want to leave you with this final thought. Not only be articulate about it, be articulate about the gospel, know it, explain it, examine it. Not only study it yourself, study other books that talk about how you can guard this faith. Be ready to expose it is a third way. But the fourth way is be ready to be ridiculed for the sake of Jesus' name. Be ready to be ridiculed for the sake of Jesus' name. After Paul sent this, off this letter to Timothy, he sent another one. After Paul sent this letter to Timothy encouraging him to guard the faith, 
Paul ended up sec sending a second letter. And here's how the second letter begins in verse 8 of, 1 Timoth of chapter 1 of 2 Timothy. Do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Friend, when you expose false teaching, shame will come. And we must be willing and we must be ready to be ridiculed for the sake of Jesus' name. Spurgeon said the following, Does a man love his Lord who would be willing to see Jesus wearing a crown of thorns while for himself be, he craves a chaplet of laurel? Shall Jesus ascend to his throne by the cross and do we expect to be carried there not the shoulders of applauding crowd, not on the shoulders of applauding crowds. Be not so vain in your imagination. Count the cost. And if you're not willing to bear Christ's cross, go away to your farm and to your merchandise and make the most of them. Only let me whisper this in your ear. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Be willing. Be ready to be ashamed for the name of Jesus. So how do we guard the truth? Be clear about the gospel. Learn from the books of the Bible what we're guarding, what that truth is, and how we can guard it. Be ready to confront false distortions of the truth and be ready to be ridiculed for the sake of Jesus' name. Parkless Baptist Church, let us guard the truth which has been entrusted to us in God's word by displaying it clearly in our life together as a church. And since the church is God's house, we are called to guard his rules and to follow them. Let's pray.